This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slippers. They're woolly bullies. They're really cool, they're really snuggly, and they will keep your feet warm. If you live somewhere where it's cold, awesome. If you just want to walk around your house with cool, cute little bull slippers, hey, BunnySlippers.com has you covered. So check it out. Found item dot found itemclothing.com also has your favorite I don't know cult classic t-shirts if you want to check that out so bunnyslippers.com founditemclothing.com thank you everyone for coming back to week four week five of March I I don't even know anymore but hey uh, we've got it going on and you've got it going on because you're listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And hey, if you want to help out the show real quick right now, why don't you go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and give us a you know, four or five uh, star review. Let us know what you think of the show. If you want to contact us and give us some suggestions, anything we can do to help you enjoy the show better, let us know. Okay, and that's on the contact of pgttcm.com. We're also on Facebook, Black Clock Audio Tales, and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, my monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. And if you want, we can make that twice a month again. Hey, we can do that. Thank you so much for listening. Help support the show by going to pgttcm.com. Hit the links, hit the show notes, hit hit all hit up all that stuff. We got a bunch of stuff. We got Dave's stuff there. We've got Zach's stuff there. We've got interviews with Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy. Let's see, Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman and Victim Seven. So yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff, and we want more stuff with you in the future let us know what you want you want more spooky stuff do you want more ghost stories we'll get it done all right so hey how are you doing hope you're doing all right i'm doing pretty good anyone who follows me on social media knows i'm doing all right i was sick doing better but you know what here comes Arthur Mackens, the terror. Terror. Recording by Lilith Brander. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter One. The Coming of the Terror. After two years, we are turning once more to the morning's news with a sense of appetite and glad expectation. There were thrills at the beginning of the war. The thrill of horror and of doom that seemed at once incredible and certain. This was when Namur fell and the German host swelled like a flood over the French fields and drew very near to the walls of Paris. And we felt the thrill of exultation when the good news came that the awful tide had been turned back, that Paris and the world were safe, for a while at all events. Then for days we hoped for more news as good as these or better. Has von Kluck been surrendered? Not today, but perhaps it will be surrendered tomorrow. But the days became weeks, the weeks drew out to months, the battle in the west seemed frozen. Now and again things were done that seemed hopeful with promise of events still better. But Neuf Champel and Luce dwelled into disappointments as their tale was told fully. The lies in the West remained, for all practical purposes of victory, immobile. Nothing seemed to happen. There was nothing to read save the record of operations that were clearly trifling and insignificant. People speculated as to the reason of this inaction. Hopeful said that Joffre had a plan that he was nibbling. Others declared that we were short of munitions. Others again that the new levies were not yet ripe for battle. So the months went by, and almost two years of war had been completed before the motionless English line began to stir and quiver as if it awoke from a long sleep. 
and began to roll onward, overwhelming the enemy. The secret of the long inaction of the British armies has been well kept. On the one hand, it was rigorously protected by the censorship, which severe, and sometimes severe to the point of absurdity, the captains and the depart, for instance, became in this particular matter ferocious. As soon as the real significance of that which was happening, or beginning to happen, was perceived by the authorities, an underlined circular was issued to the newspaper proprietor of Great Britain and Ireland. It warned each proprietor that he might impart the contents of this circular to one other person only, such person being the responsible editor of his paper, he was to keep the communication secret under the severest penalties. The secular forbade any mention of certain events that had taken place, that might take place. It forbade any kind of allusion to these events or any hint of their existence, or of the possibility of their existence, not only in the press, but in any form whatever. The subject was not to be alluded to in conversation. It was not to be hinted at, however obscurely, in letters, the very existence of the circular, its subject apart, was to be a dead secret. These measures were successful. A wealthy newspaper proprietor of the North warmed a little at the end of the thrusters' fist, which was held as usual, it will be remembered, ventured to say to the man next to him, how awful it would be, wouldn't it, if... His words were repeated as proof, one regrets to say, that it was time for old Arnold to pull himself together, and he was fined a thousand pounds. Then, there was the case of an obscure weekly paper published in the county town of an agricultural district in Wales. The Myros Observer, we would call it, was issued from a stationer's back premises and filled its four pages with accounts of local flower shows, fancy fairs at vicarages, reports of parish councils, and rare bathing fatalities. It also issued a visitor's list, which has been known to contain six names. This enlightened organ printed a paragraph which nobody noticed, which was very like paragraphs that small country newspapers have long been in the habit of printing, which could hardly give so much as a hint to anyone, to anyone, that is, who was not fully instructed in the secret. As a matter of fact, this piece of intelligence got into the paper because the proprietor, who was also the editor, incautiously left the last processes of this particular issue to the staff. He was the Lord High Everything Else of the establishment, and the star put in a bit of gossip he had heard in the market fill up two inches on the back page. But the result was that the mayor's observer ceased to appear, owing to untoward circumstances, as the proprietor said, and he would say no more, no more, that is, by way of explanation, but a great deal more by way of execration of damned prime busybodies. Now a censorship that is sufficiently minute and utterly remorseless can do amazing things in the way of hiding. What it wants to hide. Before the war, one would have thought otherwise. One would have said that, censor or no censor, the fact of the murder at X or the fact of the bank robbery at Y would certainly become known, if not through the press, at all events, through rumour and the passage of the news from mouth to mouth. And this would be true. England three hundred years ago, and of savage tribelands of today. But we have grown of late such a preference for the printed word and such a reliance on it, that the old faculty of disseminating news by a word of mouth has become atrophied. Forbid the press to mention the fact that Jones has been murdered, and it is marvellous how few people will hear of it, and of those who hear, how few will credit the story that they have heard. You meet a man in a train who remarks that he has been told something about a murder in Southwark. There is all the difference in the world between the impression you receive from such a chance communication and that given by half a dozen lines of print with name, and street and date, and all the facts of the case. People in trains repeat all sorts of tales, many of them false. Newspapers do not print accounts of murders that have not been committed. Then another consideration that has made for secrecy, I may have seemed to say that the old office of rumour no longer exists. 
I shall be reminded of the strange legend of the Russians and the mythology of the angels of Mons. But let me point out, in the first place, that both these absurdities depended on the papers for their wide dissemination. If there had been no newspapers or magazines, Russians and angels would have made but a brief, vague appearance of the most shadowy kind. A few would have heard of them, fewer still would have believed in them. They would have been gossiped about for a bare week or two, and so they would have vanished away. And then again, the very fact of these vain rumours and fantastic tales, having been so widely believed for a time, was fatal to the credit of any stray mutterings that may have got abroad. People had been taken in twice. They had seen how grave persons, men of credit, had preached and lectured about the shining forms that had saved the British army at Mons, and had testified to the trains, packed with grey-coated muscovites, rushing through the land at dead of night, and now there was a hint of something more amazing than either of the discredited legends. But this time, there was no word of confirmation to be found in daily paper, or weekly review, or parish magazine. A sort of few that had either laughed or being serious went home and jotted down nooks for essays on wartime psychology, collective delusions. I followed neither of these courses, for before the secret circular had been issued, my curiosity had somehow been aroused by certain paragraphs concerning a fatal accident to well-known airmen. The propeller of the airplane had been shattered, apparently by collision with a flight of pigeons. The blaze had been broken, and the machine had fallen like lead to the earth. And soon after, as in this account, I heard of some very odd circumstances relating to an explosion in the great munition factory in the Midlands. I thought I saw the possibility of a connection between two very different events. It has been pointed out to me by friends who have been good enough to read this record, the certain phrases I have used may give the impression that I ascribe all the delays of the war on the Western Front to the extraordinary circumstances which occasioned the issue of the secret circular. Of course this is not the case. There were many reasons for the immobility of our lines from October 1914 to July 1916. These causes have been evident enough and have been openly discussed and deplored, but behind them was something of infinitely greater moment. We lacked men, but men were pouring into the new army. We were short of shells, but when the shortage was proclaimed, the nation set itself to mend this matter with all its energy. We could undertake to supply the defects of our army both in men and munitions, if the new and incredible danger could be overcome. It has been overcome. Rather, perhaps, it has ceased to exist, and the secret may now be told. I have said my attention was attracted by an account of the death of a well-known airman. I have not a habit of preserving cuttings, I am sorry to say, so that I cannot be precise as to the date of this event. To the best of my belief, it was either towards the end of May or the beginning of June 1915. The newspaper paragraph announcing the death of Flight Lieutenant Western Reynolds was brief enough accidents and fatal accidents to the men who were storming the air for us are, unfortunately, by no means so rare as to demand an elaborated notice. But the manner in which Western Reynolds met his death struck me as extraordinary, inasmuch as it revealed a new danger in the elements that we have lately conquered. It was brought down, as I said, by a flight of birds, with pigeons, as appeared by what was found on the blood-stained and shattered blades of the propeller. An eyewitness of the accident, a fellow officer, described how Western Reynolds set out from the aerodrome on a fine afternoon, there being hardly any wind. He was going to France. He had made the journey to and fro half a dozen times or more and felt perfectly secure and at ease. Westons rose to a great height at once, and we could scarcely see the machine. I was turning to go when one of the fellows called out, I say, what's this? He pointed up, and we saw what looked like a black cloud coming from the south at a tremendous rate. I saw at once it wasn't a cloud. 
It came with a swirl and a rush quite different from any cloud I've ever seen. But for a second I couldn't make out exactly what it was. It altered its shape and turned into a great crescent and wheeled and veered about as if it was looking for something. The man who had called out had got his glasses and was staring for all he was worth. Then he shouted that it was a tremendous flight of birds, thousands of them. They went on wheeling and beating about high up in the air, and we were watching them, thinking it was interesting, but not supposing that they would make any difference to Wester, who was just about out of sight. His machine was just a spake. Then the two arms of the crescent drew in as quick as lightning, and these thousands of birds shot in a solid mass right up there across the sky and flew away somewhere about nor nor by west. Then Haney, the man with the glasses, called out, "He's dumb!" and started running, and I went after him. We got a car, and as we were going along, Haney told me that he'd seen the machine drop dead, as if it came out of that cloud of birds. He thought then that they must have mucked up the propeller somehow. That turns out to be the case. We found the propeller blades all broken and covered with blood and pigeon feathers, and carcasses of the birds had got wedged in between the blades and were sticking to them. This was the story that the young airman told one evening in a small company. He did not speak in confidence, so I have no hesitation in reproducing what he said. Naturally, I did not take a verbatim note of his conversation, but I have something of a knack of remembering talk that interests me, and I think my reproduction is very near to the tale that I heard. And let it be noted that the flying man told his story without any sense or indication of a sense that the incredible, or all but the incredible, had happened. So far as he knew, he said, it was the first accident of the kind. Airmen in France had been bothered once or twice by birds. He thought they were eagles, flying viciously at them. But poor old Wester had been the first man to come up against a flight of some thousands of pigeons. And perhaps I shall be the next, he added. But why look for trouble? Anyhow, I'm going to see Tudo tomorrow afternoon. Well, I heard the story as one hears all the buried marvels and terrors of the air, as one heard some years ago of air pockets, strange gulfs or voids in the atmosphere, into which airmen fell with great peril. Or as one heard of the experience of the airman who flew over the Cumberland Mountains in the burning summer of 1911, and as he swam far above the heights, was suddenly and vehemently blown upwards, the hot air from the rocks striking his plane as if it had been a blast from a furnace chimney. We have just begun to navigate a strange region. We must expect to encounter strange adventures, strange perils. And here a new chapter in the chronicles of these perils and adventures had been opened by the death of Western Reynolds. No doubt invention and contrivance would presently hit on some way of countering the new danger. It was, I think, about a week or ten days after the airman's death that my business called me to a northern town, the name of which, perhaps, had better remain unknown. My mission was to inquire into certain charges of extravagance which had been laid against the working people, that is, the munition workers of this especial town. It was said that the men who used to earn two pounds ten shillings a week were now getting from seven to eight pounds, that bits of girls were being paid two pounds instead of seven or eight shillings and that in consequence there was an orgy of foolish extravagance the girls i was told were eating chocolates at four five and six shillings a pound the women were ordering thirty pound pianos which they couldn't play and the men bought gold chains at ten and twenty guineas apiece i dived into the town in question and found as usual that there was a mixture of truth and exaggeration in the stories that i had heard gramophones for example they cannot be caught in strictness necessaries, but they were undoubtedly finding a ready sale, even in the more expensive brands, and I thought that there were a great many very spick and span perambulators to be seen on the pavement, smart perambulators, painted in tender shades of colour and expensively fitted. And how can you be surprised if people will have a bit of a fling? A worker said to me, 
We are seeing money for the first time in our lives, and it's bright, and we work hard for it, and we risk our lives to get it. You've heard of explosion yonder? He mentioned certain works on the outskirts of the town. Of course, neither the name of the works nor of the town had been printed. There had been a brief notice of explosion at munition works in the northern district, many fatalities. The working man told me about it and added some dreadful details. They wouldn't let their folks see the bodies, screwed them up in coffins as they found them in shop. The gas had done it. Turned the faces black, you mean? Nay, they were all as if they had been bitten to pieces. This was a strange gas. I asked the man in the northern town all sorts of questions about the extraordinary explosion of which he had spoken to me, but he had very little more to say. As I have noted already, secrets that may not be printed are often deeply kept. Last summer, there were very few people outside high official circles who knew anything about the tanks, of which we have all been talking lately. Though so these strange instruments of war were being exercised and tested in a park not far from London, so the man who told me of the explosion in the munition factory was most likely genuine in his profession that he knew nothing more of the disaster. I found out that he was a smelter employed at a furnace on the other side of the town to the ruined factory. He didn't know even what they had been making there. Some very dangerous high explosive, he supposed. His information was really nothing more than a bit of gruesome gossip, which he had heard probably at third or fourth or fifth hand. The horrible detail of faces, as if they had been bitten to pieces, had made its violent impression on him. That was all. I gave him up and took a tram to the district of the disaster, a sort of industrial suburb, five miles from the centre of the town. When I asked for the factory, I was told that it was no good my going to it, as there was nobody there. But I found it, a raw and hideous shed, with a walled yard about it, and a sharp gate. I looked for signs of destruction, but there was nothing. The roof was quite undamaged, and again it struck me that this had been a strange accident. There had been an explosion of sufficient violence to kill workpeople in the building, but the building itself showed no wounds or scars. A man came out of the gate and locked it behind him. I began to ask him some sort of question, rather. I began to open for a question. It was a terrible business here, they tell me, or some such phrase of convention. I got no farther. The man asked me if I saw a policeman walking down the street. I said I did, and I was given the choice of getting about my business forthwith or of being instantly given in charge as a spy. Thest better be gone and quick about it, was, I think, his final advice, and I took it. Well, I had come literally up against a brick wall. Thinking the problem over, I could only suppose that the smelter or his informant had twisted the phrases of the story. The smelter had said the dead man's faces were bitten to pieces. This might be an unconscious perversion of eaten away. That phrase might describe well enough the effect of strong acids, and for all I knew of the processes of munition-making, such acids might be used and might explode with horrible results in some perilous stage of their admixture. It was a day or two later that the accident of the airman, Western Reynolds, came into my mind. For one of those instants, which are far shorter than any measure of time, there flashed out the possibility of a link between the two disasters. But here was a wild impossibility, and I drove it away. And yet, I think that the thought, mad as it seemed, never left me. It was the secret light that last guided me through a sombre grove of enigmas. It was about this time, so far as the date can be fixed, that a whole district, one might say a whole county, was visited by a series of extraordinary and terrible calamities, which were the more terrible inasmuch as they continued for some time to be inscrutable mysteries. It is, indeed, doubtful whether these awful events do not still remain mysteries to many of those concerned, 
for before the inhabitants of this part of the country had time to join one link of evidence to another the secular was issued and thenceforth no one knew how to distinguish undoubted facts from wild and extravagant surmise the district in question is in the far west of wales i shall call it for convenience Marion. in it there is one seaside town of some repute with holiday-makers for five or six weeks in the summer and dotted about the county there are three or four small old towns that seem drooping in a slow decay sleepy and grey with age and forgetfulness they remind me of what i have read of towns in the west of ireland grass grows between the uneven stones of the pavements the sides above the shop windows decline half the letters of these signs are missing here and there a house has been pulled down or has been allowed to slide into ruin and wild greenery springs up through the fallen stones and there is silence in all the streets and it is to be noted these are not places that were once magnificent the celts have never had the art of building and so far as i can see such towns as towin and mathel teveld and meiros must have been always much as they are now clusters of poorish mainly built houses ill-kept and down at hill and these few towns are thinly scattered over a wild country where north is divided from south by a wilder mountain range one of these places is sixteen miles from any station the others are doubtfully and deviously connected by single-line railways served by rare trains that pause and stagger and hesitate on their slow journey up mountain passes or stop for half an hour more at lonely sheds called stations situated in the midst of desolate marshes a few years ago i travelled with an irishman on one of these queer lines and he looked to right and saw the bog with its yellow and blue grasses and stagnant pools and he looked to left and saw a ragged hillside set with grey stone walls i can hardly believe he said that i'm not still in the wilds of ireland here then one sees a wild and divided and scattered region a land of outland hills and secret and hidden valleys i know white farms on this coast which must be separate by two hours of hard rough walking from any other habitation which are invisible from any other house and inland again the farms are often ringed about by thick rows of ash planted by men of old days to shelter their roof trees from rude winds of the mountain and stormy winds of the sea so that these places too are hidden away to be surmised only by the wood smoke that rises from the green surrounding leaves a londoner must see them to believe in them and even then he can scarcely credit their utter isolation such then in the main is Marion and on this land in the early summer of last year terror descended a terror without shape such as no man there had ever known it began with the tale of a little child who wandered out into the lanes to pick flowers one sunny afternoon and never came back to the cottage on the hill End of chapter one Recording by Zach Van Stanley The Terror by Arthur McKen Chapter 2 Death in the Village The child who was lost came from a lonely cottage that stands on the slope of a steep hillside called the Alt, or the Height. The land about it is wild and ragged. Here the growth of gorse and bracken, here a marshy hollow of reeds and rushes, marking the course of the stream from some hidden well, here thickets of dense and tangled undergrowth, the outposts of wood. Down through this broken and uneven ground a path leads to the lane at the bottom of the valley, then the land rises again and swells up to the cliffs over the sea, about a quarter of a mile away. The little girl, Gertrude Morgan, asked her mother if she might go down to the lane and pick up the purple flowers. These were orchids that grew there, and her mother gave her leave, telling her that she must be back by tea time, as there was apple tart for tea. She never came back. It was supposed that she must have crossed the road and gone to the cliff's edge. 
possibly, in order to pick the sea pinks that were then in full blossom. She must have slipped, they said, and fallen into the sea, two hundred feet below. And it may be said at once that there was no doubt, some truth in this conjecture, though it stopped very short of the whole truth. The child's body must have been carried out by the tide, for it was never found. The conjecture of a false step or of a fatal slide on the slippery turf that slopes down the rocks was accepted as the only explanation possible. People thought the accident a strange one because, as a rule, the country children living by the cliffs and the sea became wary at an early age, and Gertrude Morgan was almost ten years old. Still, as the neighbors said, that's how it must have happened, and it's a great pity to be sure. But this would not do when in a week's time a strong young laborer failed to come to his cottage after the day's work. His body was found on the rock six or seven miles from the cliffs where the child was supposed to have fallen. He was going home by a path that he had used every night of his life for eight or nine years, when he used the dark of nights in perfect security, knowing every inch of it. The police asked if he drank, but he was teetotaler if he were subject to fits, but he wasn't. And he was not murdered for his wealth, since agricultural laborers are not wealthy. It was only possible again to talk of slippery turf and a false step, but people began to be frightened. Then a woman was found with her neck broken at the bottom of a disused quarry near La Fehangel, in the middle of the country. The false step theory was eliminated here, for the quarry was guarded with a natural hedge of gorse bushes. One would have to struggle to fight through sharp thorns to destruction in such a place as this. And, indeed, the gorse bushes were broken, as if someone had rushed furiously through them, just above the place where the woman's body was found. And this was strange. There was a dead sheep lying beside her in the pit, as if the woman and the sheep together had been chased over the brim of the quarry. But chased by whom, or by what? And then there was a new form of terror. This was in the region of the marshes under the mountain. A man and his son, a lad fourteen or fifteen, set out early one morning to work and never reached the farm where they were bound. Their way skirted the marsh, but it was broad, firm, and well-metalled and it had been raised about two feet over the bog. But when search was made in the evening of the same day, Phillips and his son were found dead in the marsh, covered with black slime and pondweed, and they lay some ten yards from the path which it would seem they must have left deliberately. It was useless, of course, to look for tracks in the black ooze, for if one threw a big stone into it a few seconds removed all marks of the disturbance. The men who found the two bodies beat about the verges and purlius of the marsh in hope of finding some trace of the murderers. They went to and fro over the rising ground where the black cattle were grazing. They searched the alder thickets by the brook, but they discovered nothing. Most horrible of all these horrors, perhaps, was the affair of the highway, a lonely and unfrequented by-road that winds for many miles on a high and lonely land. Here, a mile from any other dwelling, stands a cottage on the edge of a dark wood. It was inhabited by a laborer named Williams, his wife, and their three children. One hot summer's evening, a man who had been doing a day's gardening at the rectory three or four miles away passed the cottage and stopped for a few minutes to chat with Williams, the laborer, who was pottering about his garden. While the children were playing on the path by the door, the two talked of their neighbors and of the potatoes till Mrs. Williams appeared at the doorway and said supper was ready, and Williams turned to go into the house. This was about eight o'clock, and in the ordinary course the family would have their supper and be in bed by nine, or by half-past nine at the latest. At ten o'clock that night, the local doctor was driving home along the highway. His horse shied violently and then stopped dead just opposite the gate to the cottage. The doctor got down, frightened at what he saw, and there on the roadway lay Williams, his wife, and the three children, 
stone dead, all of them. Their skulls were battered in, as if by some heavy iron instrument. Their faces were beaten to a pulp. End of chapter 2. Recording by Zach Van Stanley. Recording by Dan Gerzinski. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter 3. The Doctor's Theory. It is not easy to make any picture of the horror that lay dark on the hearts of the peoples of Marion. It was no longer possible to believe or to pretend to believe that these men and women and children had met their deaths through strange accidents. The little girl and the young laborer might have slipped and fallen over the cliffs, but the woman who lay dead with the dead sheep at the bottom of the quarry, the two men who had been lured into the ooze of the marsh, the family who were found murdered on the highway before their own cottage door. In these cases there could be no room for the supposition of accident. It seemed as if it were impossible to frame any conjecture or outline of a conjecture that would account for these hideous and, as it seemed, utterly purposeless crimes. For a time people said that there must be a madman at large, a sort of country variant of Jack the Ripper, some horrible pervert who was possessed by the passion of death, who prowled darkling about that lonely land, hiding in woods and in wild places, always watching and seeking for the victims of his desire. Indeed, Dr. Lewis, who found poor Williams, his wife and children, miserably slaughtered on the highway, was convinced at first that the presence of a concealed madman in the countryside offered the only possible solution to the difficulty. I felt sure, he said to me afterwards, that the Williams had been killed by a homicidal maniac. It was the nature of the poor creature's injuries that convinced me that this was the case. Some years ago, 37 or 38 years ago as a matter of fact, I had something to do with a case which on the face of it had a strong likeness to the highway murder. At that time, I had practice at Usk, in Monmouthshire. A whole family living in a cottage by the roadside were murdered one evening. It was called, I think, the Langibi murder. The cottage was near the village of that name. The murderer was caught in Newport. He was a Spanish sailor named Garcia, and it appeared that he had killed father, mother, and the three children for the sake of the brass works of an old Dutch clock which were found on him when he was arrested. Garcia had been serving a month's imprisonment at Usk Jail for some small theft, and on his release, he set out to walk to Newport, nine or ten miles away, no doubt to get another ship. He passed the cottage and saw the man working in his garden. Garcia stabbed him with his sailor's knife. The wife rushed out. He stabbed her. Then he went into the cottage and stabbed the three children, tried to set the place on fire, and made off with the clockworks. That looked like the deed of a madman, but Garcia wasn't mad. They hanged him, I may say. He was merely a man of a very low type, a degenerate who hadn't the slightest value for human life. I am not sure, but I think he came from one of the Spanish islands where the people are said to be degenerates, very likely from too much interbreeding. But my point is that Garcia stabbed to kill and did kill, with one blow in each case. There was no senseless hacking and slashing. Now those poor people on the highway had their heads smashed to pieces by what must have been a storm of blows. Any one of them would have been fatal. But the murderer must have gone on raining blows with his iron hammer on people who were already stone dead. And that sort of thing is the work of a madman, and nothing but a madman. That's how I argue the matter out to myself just after the event. I was utterly wrong, monstrously wrong. But who could have suspected the truth? Thus, Dr. Lewis, and I quote him or the substance of him, as representative of most of the educated opinion of the district at the beginnings of the terror. 
people seized on this theory largely because it offered at least the comfort of an explanation. And any explanation, even the poorest, is better than an intolerable and terrible mystery. Besides, Dr. Lewis's theory was plausible. It explained the lack of purpose that seemed to characterize the murders. And yet, there were difficulties even from the first. It was hardly possible that a strange madman should be able to keep hidden in a countryside where any stranger is instantly noted and noticed. Sooner or later he would be seen as he prowled along the lanes or across the wild places. Indeed, a drunken, cheerful, and altogether harmless tramp was arrested by a farmer and his man in the fact and act of sleeping off beer under a hedge but the vagrant was able to prove complete and undoubted alibis and was soon allowed to go on his wandering way. Then another theory, or rather a variant of Dr. Lewis's theory, was started. This was to the effect that the person responsible for the outrages was indeed a madman, but a madman only at intervals. It was one of the members of the Porth Club, a certain Mr. Remnant, who was supposed to have originated this more subtle explanation. Mr. Remnant was a middle-aged man who, having nothing particular to do, read a great many books by way of conquering the hours. He talked to the club, doctors, retired colonels, parsons, lawyers, about personality, quoted various psychological textbooks in support of his contention that personality was sometimes fluid and unstable, went back to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as good evidence of this proposition and laid stress on Dr. Jekyll's speculation that the human soul, so far from being one and indivisible, might possibly turn out to be a mere polity, a state in which dwelt many strange and incongruous citizens, whose characters were not merely unknown, but altogether unsurmised by that form of consciousness which so rashly assumed that it was not only the president of the republic, but also its sole citizen. The long and the short of it is, Mr. Remnant concluded, that any one of us may be the murderer, though he hasn't the faintest notion of the fact. Take Llewellyn there. Mr. Payne Llewellyn was an elderly lawyer, a rural Tulkinghorn, he was the hereditary solicitor to the Morgans of Pentwin. This does not sound anything tremendous to the Saxons of London, but the style is far more than noble to the Celts of West Wales. It is immemorial. Tilo Sant was of the collaterals of the first known chief of the race, and Mr. Payne Llewellyn did his best to look like the legal adviser of this ancient house. He was weighty. He was cautious. He was sound. He was secure. I have compared him to Mr. Tulkinghorn of Lincoln's Inn Fields, but Mr. Llewellyn would most certainly never have dreamed of employing his leisure in peering into the cupboards where the family skeletons were hidden. Supposing such cupboards to have existed, Mr. Payne Llewellyn would have risked large out-of-pocket expenses to furnish them with double, triple, impregnable locks. He was a new man, and Advina, certainly, for he was partly of the conquest, being descended on one side from Sir Payne Turbeville, but he meant to stand by the old stock. Take Llewellyn now, said Mr. Remnant. Look here, Llewellyn, can you produce evidence to show where you were on the night those people were murdered on the highway? I thought not. Mr. Llewellyn, an elderly man, as I have said, hesitated before speaking. I thought not, Remnant went on. Now I say that it is perfectly possible that Llewellyn may be dealing death throughout Marion, although in his present personality he may not have the faintest suspicion that there is another Llewellyn within him, a Llewellyn who follows murder as a fine art. Mr. Payne Llewellyn did not at all relish Mr. Remnant's suggestion that he might well be a secret murderer, ravening for blood, remorseless as a wild beast. He thought the phrase about his following murder as a fine art was both nonsensical and in the worst taste. 
and his opinion was not changed when Remnant pointed out that it was used by De Quincey in the title of one of his most famous essays. If you had allowed me to speak, he said with some coldness of manner, I would have told you that on Tuesday last, the night on which those unfortunate people were murdered on the highway, I was staying at the Angel Hotel, Cardiff. I had business in Cardiff, and I was detained till Wednesday afternoon. Having given this satisfactory alibi, Mr. Payne Llewellyn left the club and did not go near it for the rest of the week. Remnant explained to those who stayed in the smoking room that, of course, he had merely used Mr. Llewellyn as a concrete example of his theory, which, he persisted, had the support of a considerable body of evidence. There are several cases of double personality on record, he declared, and I say again that it is quite possible that these murders may have been committed by one of us in his secondary personality. Why, I may be the murderer in my Remnant B state, though Remnant A knows nothing whatever about it, and is perfectly convinced that he could not kill a fowl, much less a whole family. Isn't it so, Lewis? Dr. Lewis said it was so in theory, but he thought not in fact. Most of the cases of double or multiple personalities that have been investigated, he said, have been in connection with the very dubious experiments of hypnotism or the still more dubious experiments of spiritualism. All that sort of thing, in my opinion, is like tinkering with the works of a clock. Amateur tinkering, I mean. You fumble about with the wheels and cogs and bits of mechanism that you don't really know anything about, and then you find your clock going backwards, striking 2.40 at tea time. And I believe it's just the same thing with these psychical research experiments. This secondary personality is very likely the result of the tinkering and fumbling with a very delicate apparatus that we know nothing about. Mind, I can't say that it's impossible for one of us to be the highway murderer in this B-state, as Remnant puts it, but I think it's extremely improbable. Probability is the guide of life, you know, Remnant, said Dr. Lewis, smiling at that gentleman as if to say that he had also done a little reading in his day. And it follows, therefore, that improbability is also the guide of life. When you get a very high degree of probability, that is, you are justified in taking it as a certainty, and on the other hand, if a supposition is highly improbable, you are justified in treating it as an impossible one, that is, in 999 cases out of a thousand. How about the thousandth case, said Remnant, supposing these extraordinary crimes constitute the thousandth case? The doctor smiled and shrugged his shoulders, being tired of the subject. But for some little time, highly respectable members of Porth society would look suspiciously at one another, wondering whether, after all, there mightn't be something in it. However, both Mr. Remnant's somewhat crazy theory and Dr. Lewis's plausible theory became untenable when two more victims of an awful and mysterious death were offered up in sacrifice. For a man was found dead in the Llanvihangel quarry where the woman had been discovered, and on the same day a girl of fifteen was found broken on the jagged rocks under the cliffs near Porth. Now it appeared that these two deaths must have occurred at about the same time, within an hour of one another certainly, and the distance between the quarry and the cliffs by Black Rock is certainly twenty miles. A motor could do it, one man said, but it was pointed out that there was no high road between the two places. Indeed, it might be said that there was no road at all between them. There was a network of deep, narrow, and tortuous lands that wandered into one another at all manner of queer angles for, say, seventeen miles. This in the middle, as it were, between Black Rock and the quarry at Lanvehangel. But to get to the high road at the cliffs, one had to take the path that went through two miles of fields, and the quarry lay a mile away from the nearest by-road in the midst of gorse and bracken and broken land. 
And finally, there was no track of motor car or motor bicycle in the lanes which must have been followed to pass from one place to the other. What about an airplane, then? said the man of the motor car theory. Well, there was certainly an aerodrome not far from one of the two places of death, but somehow nobody believed that the flying corps harbored a homicidal maniac. It seemed clear, therefore, that there must be more than one person concerned in the terror of Marion, and Dr. Lewis himself abandoned his own theory. As I said to Remnant at the club, he remarked, improbability is the guide of life. I can't believe that there are a pack of madmen, or even two madmen at large in the country. I give it up. And now a fresh circumstance or set of circumstances became manifest to confound judgment and to awaken new and wild surmises. For at about this time, people realized that none of the dreadful events that were happening all about them was so much as mentioned in the press. I have already spoken of the fate of the Myros Observer. This paper was suppressed by the authorities because it had inserted a brief paragraph about some person who had been found dead under mysterious circumstances. I think that paragraph referred to the first death of Lanfehangel's quarry. Thenceforth, horror followed on horror, but no word was printed in any of the local journals. The curious went to the newspaper offices, there were two left in the county, but found nothing save her firm refusal to discuss the matter. And the Cardiff papers were drawn and found blank. And the London press was apparently ignorant of the fact that crimes that had no parallel were terrorizing a whole countryside. Everybody wondered what could have happened. What was happening? And then it was whispered that the coroner would allow no inquiry to be made as to these deaths of darkness. In consequence of instructions received from the Home Office, one coroner was understood to have said, I have to tell the jury that their business will be to hear the medical evidence and to bring in a verdict immediately in accordance with that evidence. I shall disallow all questions. One jury protested. The foreman refused to bring in any verdict at all. Very good, said the coroner. Then I beg to inform you, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen of the jury, that under the Defense of the Realm Act, I have power to supersede your functions, and to enter a verdict according to the evidence which has been laid before the court, as if it had been the verdict of you all. The foreman and jury collapsed and accepted what they could not avoid, but the rumors that got abroad of all this added to the known fact that the terror was ignored in the press no doubt by official command, increased the panic that was now arising and gave it a new direction. Clearly, people reasoned, these government restrictions and prohibitions could only refer to the war, to some great danger in connection with the war, and that being so, it followed that the outrages which must be kept so secret were the work of the enemy, that is, of concealed German agents. End of chapter 3